You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. If we could stand together uh, for the reading from God's Word. Today's scripture is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 10. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended, far above all the heavens to fill all things. Thank you. You can have a seat. And if you've been tracking along, we're doing the series through one of these letters that this man, the Apostle Paul, wrote to a series of churches in a place called Ephesus, and that's why the book is called Ephesians. It's really a letter, and we're, um, for us, part of our vision is we talk about reconciliations. What does it mean to be a multicultural church? And I think there's areas to grow there, but that's part of a desire to be a church that represents people of a lot of different places and backgrounds and histories and cultures, ethnicity. But how is that rooted in the message of Christ? Because this is not just a sociological message. This is not a kumbaya, let's be more enlightened people message. This is a message that is intimately tied to the good news of Jesus Christ and the scriptures that reveal it. So we've been talking about what does it look like to be a multicultural church as we look in Ephesians. And, and if you have been tracking, it's kind of exciting because we have just crossed the half point officially. We're in chapter four. It's a six chapter letter. And we're, we're unpacking a little bit more, but we're going to enter into a lot of very practical things. And today we're looking at this idea of unity. Today we're unpacking what does it mean to be one? What does this look like? And unity, for some of you, you're going to think, ah, oh, yeah, man, this is one of those kind of lukewarm, touchy-feely, we've got to be nice to one another. Maybe, but I would suggest there's also some much deeper implications of the gospel again. So join me as we pray, as we ask the Lord to lead us in this time. Holy Spirit, we fully acknowledge that if we're not mindful, all that we do here can just be a show. It can just be more TV, more entertainment, more just things to tickle our intellect for a little bit. And those things are not bad in and of themselves, but Lord, we need more of you. And if that's going to happen, Holy Spirit, we ask that you take these feeble words that a human being will say and you translate it into something that is the very word of God. So Holy Spirit, we need you to do that. And we ask humbly, Lord, that you allow us to meet you a little bit more closer. Make us a little bit more closer to one another through this time. So we thank you that our hope is in you. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So feel free to keep your Bible open if you have it or your app, or we'll also have, I think, the, the verse on the screen here. But we're starting, and it starts off as we read in verse 1, where 
Uh, Again, the Apostle Paul, he's writing here, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. And if you know some of the background, Paul is writing this from a jail cell. And there's something I've learned in some years of ministry. When people are writing things from jail cells, you tend to pay a little bit more attention because something is really going on in their lives. That's his posture here. And this, again, is a big transition into the second half. In many ways, if you look at the structure of the book, it takes a very sharp turn, a lot of doctrinal thought, a lot of deep exploration in this idea of who we are in Christ. What does grace mean? What is this good news? And now we're going to translate and, and move into this very practical. What does this mean for life? And you see that in this word in verse 1, uh, the word that we have here translated as worthy, it, it, in the Greek, the original, it's axios. It, it, the root of that, it means weight. Like there's a weight behind this. That's like this word, uh, our modern day word axiom comes from. This idea of to be of the same weight. So in an equation, and I was never good in equations. I had to look this up. But in an equation, you have an axiom. It's like you try to make the sides equal, of equal weight. And that's the idea that we have here. Paul is urging the church, therefore, remember all of this stuff I just unpacked for you in these first three chapters. Don't lose sight of all of that doctrine. You need to know who you are. You need to know what Jesus has done for you. Look at the gift of grace. Look at how you've been made a child of God. And you've been all these wonderful things in the previous three chapters. These are riches. And what he's saying then, now if all that is true, What is that going to mean for your lives as you respond? If you believe all of these first three chapters, it's got to make a response, a walk that's worthy. This walk worthy of the calling you have received. How do these truths practically apply to the lives that you experience? Because I think sometimes, I, I don't understand how this happens, but I think sometimes we live in a world where there's so many resources out there. People know a whole heck of a lot, but there's something that falls short when it comes to how does it actually get lived out. Like people can debate theology. But I mean, I got cats out there who can like demolish me in a theological argument, but then I look at their life, I'm like, oh, are you the same person that just like t- t- tweet threaded that whole like angry diatribe about why everyone's wrong? Because your life seems to be missing something. But Paul is saying, if you've embodied all things, it's got to manifest in this walk. It's got to be weighty. The weight's got to be even. These truths have got to also equally weigh out in your actions. The practical lived out expressions are as weighty as the theological principles they're drawn from. So, I mean, this, hopefully this is not new to you. Hopefully you're like, wow, what a dram- radical concept. I hope at the village, if you've been here for a while, this is like, well, duh, pastor. Like, it's, it's important for us to live stuff out, not just know things. So when it says calling here, I know some of us, we might be familiar with those words and we're thinking about maybe your job or maybe a theological like um, calling to a particular place. It's not talking so much about that. It's talking about the general calling that all of us who are Christians have to understand the grace we've been given. And now because of that, we follow Jesus. And when you follow Jesus as the risen Lord and King, it changes everything. If you really meet him, your life cannot be the same. Your allegiance is undivided. It changes everything. And what he's saying then is, if you've received this call for your life, if this has genuinely happened, it's got to show itself, not in how well you score on your theological exam, which is cool, 
but in your relationships with others. If you've really received this call to follow this Jesus and it's affected everything, if it's not affecting your relationship with other people, especially those in the church, something's off. Something's off. Because, guys, I want us to hear correctly, this is more than just instructions for how you can have better friends. Maybe some of you need a seminar on that, right? We can do that. If you need that, let me know. We'll do a seminar, even if one-on-one seminar. I like those kind of seminars, right? Um, but this is more than just how we can have better friends. It's, this connects directly to this idea of the calling that we have, that if we follow Jesus with all we have, it must be demonstrated to the world through love. What we have in Jesus has to be shown to the world. Um, so we just heard about a missions group, 1012, great stuff. And, and I, w- I don't want to lose sight of this because I think sometimes when we say uh, missions or missions work, we traditionally think of activity, like mission trip maybe, or going into West Baltimore and doing missions. I don't ever want to lose sight of that. Um, missions is not something just to be talked about. It is meant to be expressed in action. So I'm not losing that part of it. Don't lose that. But, but I think... I've heard many stories of, yeah, you know what? There was this tremendous missions opportunity overseas, fill in your blank. But man, the people couldn't get along, and that's why the missions failed. That's really true. And, and it's a great teaching point about, about unity. It's a great teaching point. But I, think it's a, it's, I don't think it's getting the full glimpse of what's happening there. Because what I would suggest here, and this is actually up on the screen because I think it's that important, our unity is not just so we can do missions better, but our unity is the mission. It doesn't mean it's the only mission. We've got to do stuff, but our friendship, our closeness, our oneness, our unity, whatever you want to call it, it's not just so we can be effective in doing things better, but those relationships are part of God's revelation to the world of who he is. It's that important. It's that critical. It's what Jesus himself, and this is not on the screen, but this is from John chapter 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Catch this part. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Some of you are like, oh man, I can't be a missionary. Well, dude, love your neighbor and you being a missionary. Jesus said, by the love we have for one another, the world will know that you follow me. You're my disciples. It doesn't say it here because Jesus is kind of a positive guy, but I think there's a corollary to that. By the dislove you have for one another, they're getting another glimpse of me too. And guys, this is, this is key for our church. Um, because the call to unity, this is so much bigger than us playing nice so that church picnics don't have to be awkward, (laughs) right? It's the very practical outworking of our mission to share the good news of Jesus' love with our world, including right here in Baltimore. The community that we build here, the fellowship, the oneness, the unity. We're called to fight for this unity. It's something that important that that we got to cherish it and guard it with all that we have because a lot of this is at stake. So Paul then, he gives us some practical ways this unity is expressed, uh, starting in verse 2. 
And, and you, you see the verses there. I just want to unpack this because this is it's really practical. He's like, you want to know what unity is? Here's what it looks like. Humility. Starts with humility. And, and most of us, I think, we view humility as, as a pretty admirable quality in someone. I mean, I'll just be real. Maybe I'm just real pagan. I don't know many people that would enjoy being humble. Maybe some of you do, right? I don't know many people who enjoy being humble. Um, but we recognize it's a positive thing. I mean, we want other people around us to be humble because we, we recognize it's an admirable trait in someone. But to the people that Paul was writing to, this was not the case. When Paul is saying, you got to be humble, this is like anathema to them. They're like, what? Humility? That, that's, that's terrible. Because in the ancient word, the world, this word that's associated with humility it was literally um, a lowliness of mind. This was not a positive thing when you say, be humble. Um, it was actually considered a defect in someone's character if you're known to be humble. Um, picture in mind, and this is some of the imagery, it, the word humble was associated with kind of the groveling that you should see in slaves. That's like what humble meant. Um, and, you know, we're so advanced in 2021, so we can't understand what that means at all, right? <laughs> I mean, in our own world, in our own culture, um, if you like a superstar athlete, you don't want to be really known as humble, unless it's by your choice, right? Like, humility is not really, I mean, we like it. We want other people to be humble, but we don't celebrate it as, like, a great admiral trait, especially if, like, we really value strength. But when we consider the gospel... Humility is a, I would say it's an essential prerequisite to faith. Without humility, there's really no faith because what keeps people from God? Pride. What keeps us from God? What keeps us from change? What keeps us from hearing things that we need correction? Pride. Pride says, I don't need anyone's help, including from God. Pride leads us to fail to recognize how we continually need God to transform us. Pride is not, I'm good. That's just how I'm born. That's just, that's just me. Pride says, I don't need changing. And pride can lead to hard-heartedness before God, but also with others. But humility leads to faith. Humility acknowledges, hey, I need help. Oof, I need more help than you realize. Humility is realizing that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not God grading us on a curve. Like we all stand before him and we bring our trophies, we bring our resumes, our CVs, and, and some of us, we're like, oh yeah, I just need like a little bump to get over that hump. Come on, God, give me some little bit of gospel. I need a little bit of gospel. Oh, that cat over there, he needs a lot of gospel. God, give, give him the full package. The gospel, humility is when we have utterly failed, Jesus is the only one who scored all aces. And we get the blessing of his grades. Some of y'all academically minded, that illustration probably meant more. <laughs> Jesus took our place. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't and took on the penalty that we all deserve for falling short. And it's important to recognize that kind of humility because some people, they think of humility as uh, like a low unhealthy low image, right? Like dogging yourself unnecessarily, denigrating yourself. But the truth is, 
biblical humility is not poor self-image. It's just being realistic. It's being honest. It's actually, I would suggest, a mature sense of self-awareness. Like you actually see the reality of what's going on. Because humility is not about ability. It's about value. it's, It's this awareness that all that we have, all that we are, all the good stuff we do, it comes from God. And humility gives us a proper understanding of our place in all of these things that at the center is God. And there's freedom there because what it means is you and I, we're not the center of the universe. As much as since you were a baby, you've been taught that you are the center and mommies and daddies are doing a really good job, but they can't help it because you're just so cute. Everything's about you. And God is trying to free us to say, actually, no, freedom comes with recognizing it's not all about you. It's about God. It's about other people. Everything is not just about how it affects me and how it makes me feel. I know, revolutionary concept, right? Humility allows us to not overvalue ourselves at the expense of valuing other people. We are not more important than anyone else. You're incredibly important, but not more important than someone else. And I think there's practical application just as we think about what does it mean to be part of a church. If I say anything offensive today, it's okay because I'm just an offensive person. But just taking, taking, um, sometimes when people think about church, we can't help but view it through the grid of what did I get out of it today? What was God saying to me? And, and you should ask some of those questions. That's appropriate. But I think I've actually seen like websites that are designed like Yelp for people to grade churches based on their experience. And, and I want to be really mindful. Some of that's really helpful because churches need to do self-correcting and evaluation. Those things are helpful. But if we're not careful, church is just another way of how we grade our restaurants in the city. Oh, man, they really treated me well when I... Oh, they made me feel like I was the best customer. Or Oh, man, their, their appetizer, that music, epic. Main course, sermon. But, oh, you know, and... and I'm I'm being a little facetious, but there's got to be an understanding without allowing for like laziness that everything in a church will not make me happy. Even as a pastor, not everything in this church is to my full preference. But that's okay because it's not all about me. It's about God and everyone else there happiness, their well-being is just as important as mine. And I would suggest it's impossible to have that kind of posture without humility. If we're not humble, why wouldn't we be asking first, how does this affect me? How do I feel about this? So humility. We see here also gentleness. And I think gentleness, it works with humility. Um, This can also be translated as the idea of softness or mildness. And even as I said, some of you are like, okay, I'm cool with gentle. I'm not cool with soft, right? But that's what it connotes here. And right there, that's the problem for many in our culture where um, gentleness is not celebrated. I mean, I don't know if we have the copies of the book here, but I think we have some if you want it. But a great book that came out, Gentle and Lowly. It's crazy. There was a big backlash against that book from a lot of people saying, Jesus was not gentle and lowly. Jesus was the manliest man of men. How dare you call him gentle and lowly? Um, and then you read Matthew chapter 11 where he says, I am gentle and lowly. And, and uh, 
that's the Jesus problem, right? I mean, don't, don't lose sight. He's also a warrior. He fears. But he also expresses himself in gentle and lowliness. And I think part of it is we've got to recognize that the gentleness that's described in our passage here today is the different than maybe the gentleness that we associate with our world. Because when you think of gentle in our world, maybe you think of kind of that milk toast person who's a little timid. Like they look like they're afraid of like a cat sneaking up on them or something, or they lack courage or fire. Like they got no conviction, they got no backbone. But like we see with Jesus, the biblical concept of meekness and gentleness is power. But it's, here's the difference. It's power under control. Gentleness in the scriptures is the strongest power, but it's fully under control. Because a gentle person, don't get this twisted. A gentle person is strong, but they know how to rule their strength for the benefit of themselves and others. Because, yeah, you can be strong. Everyone can fear you, but you can be a monster. That's not true power. Power is someone who's strong, but they know how to rule that so that they can best be present for other people's flourishing. That's gentleness. Gentleness is that powerful ability to not lose your mind when everyone around you is losing theirs. I mean, there's a message for our world right now, right? Gentleness is when everyone's getting mad about something, for the, you know, the thing about today that gets you supposed to get you mad, and yet you're able to calm yourself down. It doesn't mean you don't have conviction. You're very strong, but you're ruling because you know maybe the way I express it is not going to be that helpful for other people, for myself. Gentleness looks like not losing your stuff over those common daily irritants and, and like um, just those annoyances that we all face. For me, sometimes it's like school drop-off line, you know, things that make you just want to lose your stuff, like cartoon flames come out of your head. Gentleness sink. okay, chill. You're okay. This is not the end of the world. It's just a couple extra minutes. I know they should take away that person's driver's license, but it's okay. <laughs> gentleness is realizing, yeah, you could respond a certain way to really let people know how you feel, but gentleness is you're going to rule that. Because you're strong. Um, I think in the context of our unity then, gentleness in that spirit, and this might be really hard for some of us, it allows us to respond with kindness to people who honestly in our flesh make us want to respond in the exact opposite manner. That's what gentleness is. I, I got a story from that when I was younger in ministry, and this is like a couple decades ago now. You can do the math how old I am, but I remember... Um, Sometimes in church, you know, if you're a pastor, you got to send out announcements. I remember there was an incident going on, and I put out an email to the church I was at at the time. And I guess it got some people mad, because I remember there was one dude, young dude, who wrote an email back. And thankfully, it wasn't reply all. It was just to me. I mean, that's cool. But like scathing. Like, who the bleep are you? Who made you, a, who calls you a pastor? You are a bleep, 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 all this stuff. Like, how in the world are you leading in this place so incompetent, such a more, all these things. I'll be real. I used to get in a lot of scraps. I was ready to pull on my Nikes, 
get on some stuff and go find his cat and say, you little punk. How dare you, t- keyboard warrior, all brave. Over, let, let's, let's take care of this like men. And, you know, I was probably a toxic man at the time. But let's take care of this like men. And thankfully, the Lord stopped me, prayed, saying, that is not going to help. Write a different email. Delete now. Write a different email. No, God. Write a different email. All right, well, I'm going to save it, Lord, just in case. Brother. Hey, I'm really sorry. I know this is a really tense time and everyone's kind of frustrated. Um, if I offended you, if I did something, hey, man, I'm really sorry. Maybe we can talk this out sometime. All I know is he wrote back and we ended up getting together. He's like, man, I was shocked because I thought you were going to beat me up. I was like, no, thought never crossed my mind. What kind of pagan would think? ah." But it's crazy. I didn't want to respond in gentleness, but I did. And God used that because that dude, he ended up, something happened in his heart where he just softened. He ended up becoming one of our key leaders of that fellowship. I even invited that dude to our wedding. And just a reminder that sometimes we want to respond in stuff in our flesh. But gentleness, and I would suggest the only kind that can come through a presence of the Holy Spirit, says, yeah, you can do some stuff. But what would it look like to control that response? Pray through. Sit in that a little bit. How will that help you and others? Especially as we think about unity. So gentleness is key as it works with humility. We also see patience. Um, In our vocabulary, we use this word short-tempered. I don't know why, but we don't really use long-tempered that much. But that's kind of the idea what patience here means, literally, this idea of being long-tempered, that when a wrong has been done to us. um, I don't know about you, the natural reaction, again, I'm a fighter, the natural reaction is to resist strongly. That's just innate within us. You know, if you're like me, you like want to pull a John Wick, right? And if you don't even know what that is, praise God, because you're a much holier than I am. But delete that from your mind if you don't know what it is. Don't Google, right? But you want to like pay back in kind. You want to respond with like anger with anger. And I think, honestly, that's become a marker of our culture, right? Like we're all about instant response, instant reaction. You, we do and we say what we feel. Yo, I just got to be right to myself. I got to be real. And we put it out there. And, and I want to be clear. Sometimes a situation requires action in the moment. If there is evil in front of you, you can't wait to pray on that. Sometimes you need to stop something that's happening. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about other situations where it would be prudent and wise. And sometimes you don't know. And that's why walking with the spirit is so important then maybe God's calling you to be a a little long-suffering in that, a little long-tempered in that. Don't respond right away. Bring that to God. What's he saying? What's he doing in you? What's he revealing? We need to recognize when in unhealthy ways, our response, sometimes when it flares out, it's tied to a lack of patience, an unhealthy lack of patience. Because in, I know this is true in churches. I'm sure it's true in marriages and families, at workplaces. But so much of the breakdown in unity comes 
when patience gets thrown out the window. And it's related to the next thing we see here, but it's a little different, but bearing with one another in love. And this is slightly different than patience because what bearing one with one another in love, when you're saying you're bearing with one another, you are assuming that the other person is a jerk. I don't know if we're allowed to say that in church, but I already said it, so it's okay. It's out there. But you are so, you're assuming that people are doing harm, like they're not a nice person, and that you're going to put up with them until either God changes them or you. That's what bearing with one another in love is. It's very much a gospel perspective on people because one thing about the gospel, it allows us to not look down on people. And I think most of us naturally get that, right? If you understand Jesus, oh yeah, you shouldn't look down at people. But this part I think sometimes gets lost. The gospel also, also allows us to not look, at, not look up at anyone in an unhealthy way. What I mean by that is it allows you, you to have realistic expectations of other people. Because sometimes one of the biggest impediments in relationship is our expectations of people are either way too high, just not realistic, and not very Christian. And we get upset when they respond in a certain way. And we forget, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, even Christians. And sometimes, I think maybe we do this in church more than others. It's weird, right? We almost have a superficial idealism about people. Oh, they are a saint in the church of Jesus Christ. They should not use their language in that way toward me. Don't they know that the way they approached me, the way they gave me that donut made me feel... We read into all this weird stuff about our expectations of people. And and I'm not talking just about self-protection so we don't get hurt. But it's a genuine ability to love people. Knowing that their inclination, just like yours, is to themselves. I think sometimes the most helpful thing for unity in a church is just to say, yeah, you know, we're all kind of bent towards self and thank God Jesus saves us, but we still got some of that in us. I mean, it's fresh in my mind because I'm working with some people through premarital counseling, but I think in marriage, honestly, one of the biggest challenges is not that we should like have no expectations of someone, that's not love, but sometimes we put the pedestal way too high to the point where no one can ever live up to that. And we're just mad our whole life. Why isn't my wife or my husband the way that I thought they were? Because they never were. But you lifted them up like that. So they're always going to fall short. And that's why I love these passages. Because Paul, he's just so realistic. Because the reason he has to include bearing with one another in love is the simple fact. Yo, people could be unbearable. I mean, at least if you get to know them well enough. And maybe that's even a barometer for us, a good gauge of how connected you are to a community like the village. If you got to bear with no one in love here, probably you just haven't gotten that connected. Because if you take steps to be involved, whether you're serving on a team or you're in a community group or you, um, you're getting into friendships with people, I guarantee you press into that enough you will find some stuff that says, this person is unbearable. You know why? Because they just like you. We all have that. The problem is, in most spaces, we just don't get close enough to really be able to experience it. But that's where the gospel is beautiful, because it's inviting us into those relationships to say, I can work with that. But you got to be honest with it. Because it helps to remember 
that Jesus' crazy, crazy love for you and me, it's a miracle of bearing with us. We are not easy to love. If you got a good friend or you got a spouse, or some of you can call your mama and just ask them, am I easy to love? And please be honest. Don't take much offense when they say, no, heck no, you're hard to love, but I love you. Because that's how Jesus loves us. Not because we're lovable, but because he loves us. And it reminds us of the radical nature of the gospel that the perfect one would love the imperfect. Isn't that insane? That the perfect one, the only one who has a right to bear grudges, loves imperfect people like you and me. Next we see here, Paul says, to making every effort to maintain the unity. And here's why I really like this command. What it's saying to us, I think there's freedom here. It's saying our command is not to make unity out of chaos. Like, or, or that our job is to create the kind of oneness he's describing. Because, I mean, you can be the best person in this room. That's way above any of our pay grade. None of us have the capacity to create debt. Rather, our call is much more realistic. Yo, just don't mess up what God has already done. That's the call we have. And this unity we have, it's because of the very fact that we are commonly found in him, like we've looked in the first three chapters. So the call then is maintain what Jesus has already accomplished. So we don't create unity, but we fight for it with our every fiber. And what this is saying to us is it's not easy or natural. This is not in our inclination. If unity feels hard to you, if relationship feels hard for you, it's because you're probably trying to do it right. Because it's the very opposite of our being. That's why he says, make an effort to maintain it. Because it's probably not just going to happen on its own. So our mission, it calls us to unity. And it's important that we come to a certain sense of solidarity agreement. But I think what these scriptures should remind us, remind you and me, that as much as we strive and we fight for unity, we got to be mindful where our unity ultimately comes from. Our unity, it's already established by God. Like, our mandate is to love our neighbor, go places, sir. Our mandate is not to create unity. We see how it's done in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. As described here, we are given the grace necessary to live out this unity. God has apportioned to each of us the grace to be part of this. But as impossible as that will sometimes feel, and I don't know if any of you ever feel like it's impossible to be unified with people, especially hard people. The glory of this, and if, I'm not going to unpack just for the sake of time, but if you hear, you see signs of the Trinity all throughout these passages. All of these ideas of one, you see the Father, you see the Spirit, you see the Son. It's sprinkled through all these verses. And what it's saying is, as unbreakable as that Trinity is, as unbreakable as the Godhead is, that is how strong your unity is. This is a unity created by me. As much as you guys try to jack this up, you cannot break this. Now do your best to maintain it. Because our unity, it's, a, it's assured in God's design for himself but also for us as we're made in his image.
So what that means, guys, there's freedom here. Freedom is I don't have to try to make someone agree with me. And some of you are like a hearty amen because you're like, that's impossible. Yeah, you cannot make someone agree with you if they don't want to. But here is your job. Um, Live your life in a manner worthy of the calling. Work for unity. Be one. And that frames what we do here as a church community at the village. So at the village, we are working for unity. What does it mean for us to work for unity at the village? Our mission at the church is transforming lives and transforming communities. We have got to be crystal clear about this. Transformation is not just about more information. And some of you, you are, that's just your paradigm for life. The more information I can gather, the more books I can, and I'm a big fan of all that. I would actually say without that, transformation is kind of um, flighty. You need like solid content. You need to know what you believe, but it's not just information. But I would suggest for transformation to happen as you bring in things like doctrine and, and theological truth, it requires in being in closer relational space than the typical understanding of what the church might be. Transformation requires you to be in some space. And again, this is great here. This is a part of it, I would suggest. But if just just allows you to kind of take in more information and there's not really an outlet for how you express in relationship, it might just lead to like a, a bigger head full of good, really good stuff but we're always meant to live that out in relationship. And in our church, that can take on a few different forms. One, uh, we work for Unity at the Village through our community groups. And, and, you know, we encourage you, get into a community, get into one of these groups that meets in different places. And you've got to have this mindset. It's not just about how good the Bible study is. That's going to be radical for some of you. Because they're like, well, that's why we do groups, right? For Bible study. It's a big part of it, but it's more about being in a space relationship with someone. So we have different groups. We encourage you, you got to get into one of these if you're going to live on this mission of having your life transformed so you can transform communities. We also work for uni at the village through partnership. And for us, that's our word for membership. Um, That's simply saying, I choose to walk with this church. I'm not going to be an independent, solo, ride on my own. I'm going to commit myself to being part of this church as a partner member. And, and we, we welcome you to do that. We have our next Intro to Village class, which is a step towards that. That's on November 14th. If you are not a partner of the village, I highly encourage you, sign up for that and come at least hear what the village is about to consider getting involved. So here's what I would say about it. You might, that might be like, you're like, well, of course, that's your job. Get us to events and stuff. Um, hear this. We usually understand when we talk about things like groups, membership, hey, That's what good Christians do. They do things like groups and they become members. They get more committed. And I think that's, there's some truth to that. But we also need the church through things like groups and partnership precisely because we're not the people like that. Precisely because we have a hard time getting along, we need to be in spaces that are going to press us into what relationship looks like. Precisely because on the surface on Sunday, y'all look like Billy Graham incarnate. Great. No problems. If you got a beef with someone on Sunday, you might have just taken their communion or something. I don't know, but it's hard to do that. But you know where you start to press in those deeper areas of relationship? 
when you get into closer spaces, you actually find out what people believe that are different than you. You start to see how people conduct their lives that's a little offensive to you. You start to encounter things that really make you uncomfortable. You start to be in places where some, sometimes it's just, again, I don't want to over-spiritualize it. You just don't like some people. Like some people just get on your nerves. And I think it's okay to say that in church. Some, it doesn't mean you don't love them, but some people just are not easy to like, let alone love. But it's good to be in those spaces because God's revealing a lot about your heart through that. Because it's really easy to learn systematic theology and think you mature. But I would suggest true maturity starts to come out in how you do relationship with people. Because your relationships, they are designed to give you joy. And I wanna, I wanna, I'm not a Debbie Downer, right? I, I genuinely believe relationships are full of joy. But they will also reveal your sin and your brokenness in ways that nothing else can. but it's an invitation to God. God will bring you to a place where you feel helpless to change yourself. Like, how can I not feel a certain way about someone? It's an invitation to God. Come to me, the God who doesn't just change behaviors, which we can kind of do, but he changes actual desires, changes heart. Because I think people sometimes have this very romantic expectation of church that people are just automatically always going to get along with one another, that nothing ever goes wrong, and maybe you've experienced some hard relational dynamics in church, and maybe some of you, you've gotten really turned off by that. You've been like, why, why would I want to be part of it? These, these people are worse than the world. I think some of that, we should just have realistic expectations. The rest of the world says, hide who you are. If you come to work, I don't want all your stuff. You keep that at home. Find a way to take care of that because we don't want to work with that. But at church, what are we saying? We want all your stuff. Be honest. Meet God who wants to give you grace. But we've got to understand if we're going to be intellectually honest with that, we're saying, let us see all your stuff. Even the really hard things. You will encounter people in church that you have a hard time getting along with. You will not always see eye to eye. Some people will annoy you. But I mean, why should we expect differently if that's what happens in a lot of our homes, even the best homes? A good family? Kids, they're fighting. And like two minutes later, they're playing. But then two minutes later again, they're fighting. Like that's kind of normal. If kids were sitting there and, oh, Sally, you are the greatest sister I've ever had. And they're like that 24-7. You got to pull a doctor in there because something's probably wrong. You're missing something. Like, this rub relationally is kind of actually normal. And this might, this might be a little hard to hear, but in church, I think sometimes is we have an unrealistic expectation of what we bring in here. Because we hope to do family well, relationship well, but a lot of us, I know I do this, we're bringing in years and years of maybe dysfunctional relationships. Some of us, like some of you, the church will never feel better than your family of origin, some of you, it's like water because your family of origin was really hard and relationship was not done in a healthy way. It was actually toxic and abusive. And the thing is, Jesus transforms us, but we still bring all of that in. 
And we might not even recognize how we're bringing our stuff in, how we've always resolved conflict, how we've uh, unintentionally even expressed anger and frustration. Like we're bringing that in and we might not even recognize it. I want to be really clear here. What I'm saying is we've got to be a community that tolerates one another, gives one another grace. Hear me crystal, crystal, crystal clear right now. This is not tolerating church abuse. Because I think in the same way, sometimes churches, they'll use this. Hey, it's all about the unity. Don't bring that stuff up because you're destroying the unity. You're opposed to the mission of God right now. But that is not what we're saying at all. If there is genuine instances of abuse, and again, I, I'm hoping that's not here. But if it is, let's, we have processes to address that. Or maybe some of you are coming in from other situations where um, it was all about unity but it was unified around some really ugly stuff because you can be unified and be totally jacked up. Unity itself is not the goal. There is something about doctrinal fidelity and character issues. There's got to be unity in right ways. This is not excusing abuse. So I, I just want to make that really clear in case the soundbite pulls off other parts, right? As seriously as we need to take it, our response, though, I would suggest it can't be that we pull away from the very means that God has provided us to be one in his church. Because the call to unity is our mission, but guys, it's also how we're transformed. Not through decades of sitting every week in theology classes. And again, I'm, I love theology. I'm, I'm, I love that. If that's it, I don't think that's how we're transformed because again, we've equated orthodox doctrinal understanding with maturity, but I think our relational nature may give us more accurate assessment of who God is to us, what we need God's work in. And it may feel hopeless to you. It may feel, I mean, honestly, it feels like bad news sometimes, even to me. If I've hurt some of you, I might not even know it, and I'm sorry, because that's what people do in churches. We hurt even if that's not our intent. But guys, as hard as it feels, as maybe some of you feel really bummed out, you're like, man, oh, this is my first time here today. I'm definitely not coming back here. There are a bunch of jacked up sinners here. The preacher can't even get his stuff straight. That, that's what the church is though. But it's really good news because our difficulties in being one point us to Jesus. It gives us a continual, regular reminder of why we need this Savior. Look at verse 8. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captive's captive, he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. This is like this crazy paradox that Jesus, the one who's glorified, the one who reigns on high, the one who conquered sin, death, and the grave, how did he accomplish it? How does he rule over all? By coming and descending to the earth, by becoming one of us, by taking on flesh that could be cut that could be bleeding, that could be abused. He took that all upon himself. How does Christ create his unified church? It's all about humility. It's dissension. It's gentleness. He was meek. Don't equate that with weak, but he was meek. He was gentle. He was patient. He bears with us, and he makes us want to worship him. He makes us want to come back to the one who we put our hope in if we're going to be one here. That's why we do the Lord's Supper weekly, because if you're like me, I don't love people that well, <laughs> as being brutally honest. I need to be reminded of the one that I need who reveals all of my sin 
and says, there's still hope for you, Dan. Come, eat, remind yourself of the one who makes all this happen. Not you because you preach a great message, not because we do some great prayer meetings, but Jesus, the one who we are centered on, who gives us our common unity in him. Stand with me as we respond. I know these are some heavy things, but again, for me, unity is not just a touchy-feely thing. It's our very mission, and it should drive us to the Christ. So as I invite you, if you're a Christian, I invite you to come and come up the middle aisles, take one of these communion pieces and take it back with you around the outside aisles and wait for everyone else. We're going to take it all together because there's a reason why communion, and some of you have done this, no judgment on you. It's not actually meant to be done by yourself or even in like a smaller group. It's meant to be done with the church. Like there's a reason. It's one of the few sacraments given to be done with the church because it's about the unity of the church. So wait to take that together. If you're not a Christian, maybe you feel very unified here, but honestly, some of the stuff is like, you don't know who Jesus is. We invite you, say, Jesus gave his life for me too. And maybe today you come receive communion for the first time saying, I trust in this Jesus who can make me part of this larger family here. Not by my work or my goodness or because I jumped through some hoops, but because of his work. And I received that. So let me pray for us. Lord, help us. We are in desperate need of your grace, Lord. We are a people who will tear ourselves apart without you. If we try to do this by our goodness, we need you. So help us, Lord. Meet us in this place right now as we sing, as we pray, as we receive the Lord's Supper. May we remember and lift our eyes to the one who makes all this possible and who continues to make it possible. So help us, Lord. Show mercy on us. Let's continue to worship God.